Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Well, if you read my bio on the church website, you'll see that I enjoy watching movies is one of my pastimes, as well as reading, spending time with family. But I enjoy watching films, but there's something I've been noticing about movies that have been coming out recently, and I'm not the only one. If you look at the movies that come out in a given year, you will see a lot of sequels, a lot of sequels, follow-ups to other films. In fact, last year, in 2021, all 10 of the highest grossing American films, the 10 movies that made the most money in the U.S. and North America and Canada, all of them were either a sequel, a reboot, a, another version of something, or they're a spin-off of something that's already been established, of a movie franchise that's already been going on. There are many different studios that are doing things like this. The Disney, they seem to be remaking all the movies that came out when I was a kid. They're just redoing them all over again. Lion King, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, there's Little Mermaid coming up. They're just remaking these movies. You probably also know that I like Star Wars. Well, in the past 10 years, there have been five Star Wars movies of vastly varying quality, and that's all I'll say about that. Uh, <laughs> There's also been at least six Star Wars TV series with a seventh coming in August. That's just the past 10 years. Looking back in my lifetime, in my lifetime, there have been three different actors who have played Spider-Man in a live action movie. And if you switch to live action Batman movies, it's even worse. In my lifetime, there's been six different actors who have played Batman. I looked it up this week just to check and According to some movie news reporting websites, there are at least 110 movie sequels that are somewhere in production in Hollywood right now. Why? Why are there all these sequels? Well, because they make money for the studios. That, that, that's why. But if we're thinking a deeper way about why exactly these films make money, I think it's because something about us, we want more to a story. We're not content with just the story we have. We want something else to happen. We want something else for the characters to do. We like them. We want to see them do more things. And if we're not careful, we can have somewhat of a same attitude when we think about faith, our relationship with God. We can want to do something more. Like we want these movies with people doing more. We want to do something more. We read about these heroes in the Bible, Abraham, Moses. Oh, wow, they did great things. What do I do? Oh, Jesus, he died on the cross. Now, now, what's my role? What do I do now? But in the Bible, we're going to actually see something different when we look at Jesus. We're going to see that Jesus actually did something once. And that thing he did once lasts forever. It's over. It's done. There will not be a sequel. Jesus saw that we had a problem in our relationship with God, and he acted to solve that problem by one act, one single sacrifice. He did that so we could be restored to God. And we're going to talk about that today. It's a bit of a longer passage, so I'm going to pray and we'll read it as we go through our text. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and his one time, once for all, single sacrifice for our sins. Thank you that even though we, the best we could do were imperfect sacrifices and offerings, your son Christ came to do your will 
And by His single sacrifice, we now have forgiveness for our sins. Lord, I pray that as we read about what He has done, that one act today, that You will remind us anew of Your great love for us. May we rest in what He has done. Not seek to add to it, not seek to add our name to the story, but see what He has done to save us and to know and rely on Him. May He be our focus today. To borrow words from John the Baptist, may He increase and may I decrease. May everything else we try to lift up beside Him decrease. May we truly see how much better, how wonderful Jesus is. It's in His name that I pray. Amen. If you remember, or perhaps this is you haven't been with us, we're going through the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. In this book, an author is writing a letter to a group of people who were Jewish background believers in Christ. They used to practice the Hebrew faith, but now they had become Christians. However, they were wrestling with the desire to go back. They wanted to go back to practicing Judaism, particularly the sacrifices that they would offer. And our author here is saying that Jesus is better than going back to those sacrifices. He's better than anything else you could compare him to. And he's better because he did something that was once and for all time. Last week we were finishing chapter 9 and we read a little bit about this. And I said we'd talk more about it this week. In chapter 9 verses 25 and 26, text says that it wasn't to offer himself repeatedly as those High priests, the, the Hebrew Jewish faith high priests, entered the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then, talking about Jesus, he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. We talked about how that verse is referencing the Day of Atonement when the Hebrew high priest would go into God's presence to give a sacrifice to atone, pay for the sins of the people. And our author said Jesus did the same thing. He atoned, he paid for sins, but he only did it once and his sacrifice lasts forever. We then read in verse 28 the same idea. It said, so Christ having been offered once, to bear the sins of many. That's the key word that, that we saw in that last chapter. It's the key word in this chapter as well, once. If I wasn't so committed to making every sermon title, Jesus is better than something, the title would have been once for this message. And this idea of one sacrifice leads into our passage. And this passage today is kind of the conclusion, the wrapping up of this teaching theology section of the book of Hebrews before it turns to a few more practical matters. So that's our focus today is what is the importance of Jesus dying once? Well, it's important because we have a problem. And if you're using the outline, you can see that problem. Our problem is that without Christ, all we have are imperfect sacrifices. Without Christ, we have imperfect, or perhaps you want to put insufficient sacrifices. Our author explains that the old Mosaic law, it could never make us perfect. Chapter 10, verse 1 says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of those realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, it can never make perfect those 
who draw near. The author says the law is about good things. It's looking forward to the good things we can enjoy in our relationship with God. But those sacrifices did not bring those good things about. It was a shadow. It was not the true form, the image of that reality. The New Living Translation said of shadow, it has dim preview. It was a dim preview. It wasn't the full picture, but it was just a kind of a blurry version of it. It wasn't the, the full truth of what was there. Think about two years ago. We all learned what Zoom is or some other form of communicating online. And when you talk to someone online, that's a good thing. It's good to communicate with someone there. But it's not the same as actually being with another person. It's a good thing, but it should whet our appetite for, I can't wait till I'm actually with that person and talking to them. Well, that's the same thing. That Old Testament sacrifice, that was good, but it was supposed to make them want for something more, a permanent sacrifice still to come. As Paul would say in Colossians, he said, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance, the reality, belongs to Christ. Because those sacrifices could be offered continuously, again, again, endlessly, but they would not make us perfect before God. We saw this earlier in Hebrews chapter 9. The author said, according to the arrangement that was there in the Old Testament, the gifts and sacrifices that are offered, they cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. They can't fix the problem in us, our separation from God. They deal only with food and drink and various washings. We need to be perfect. We need to be perfect in order to draw near to God. We need to be 100% perfect to approach him. And the problem is these sacrifices and the cleansing they offered, it was imperfect. It was insufficient. It was incomplete. And the reason it wasn't perfect is because it was just meant to be temporary. One scholar, Al Mohler, said this way, the new covenant brings permanent redemption in Christ. The old covenant only temporarily suspended the judgment of God. It was a temporary way of holding back God's judgment for his people until a permanent way could be made available. That's why I put a traffic light. A traffic light doesn't stay red. Eventually, it turns to green. Eventually. It depends on the light. The author then talks about in verse 2 that if the Old Testament law made people perfect, then they wouldn't need to keep offering sacrifices. He says in verse 2, Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. That's kind of a jumble of words, but his point here is that the fact that these sacrifices needed to be repeated, they needed to do them over and over, shows that they weren't perfect. They weren't bringing full forgiveness for the people. Because if it perfectly cleansed them, if it made them perfectly pure before God, well, then they would stop doing them. They'd say, why do I need to offer a sacrifice? I'm perfect before God. I had this sacrifice. It made me perfect. I don't need to offer anymore. They wouldn't be conscious of their sins. They wouldn't feel guilty for them. They would live in perfect peace with God. But that wasn't their experience. They didn't feel perfect peace with God. They felt, I need to keep offering these sacrifices. And our author says that means something was missing. Now we might say, well, why did God even do that? Why did he do it that way? Why did he have them offer all those animal sacrifices? Why even have that Old Testament, that Old Covenant way of doing things? Well, verses 3 and 4 tell us. 
They say, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. That day, when that priest would go before God, that day of atonement, it was an annual reminder for the people. We are sinners. We fall short. We don't live up to everything God has asked us to do. We are separated from God. It was a public parade of all their failures. We're sinners. We've messed up. We need this guy to go before God on our behalf. It was a yearly lesson for them that they could not earn their forgiveness. The, the regular person, Joe, Steve, Bob, they couldn't walk in there. They needed this one guy to walk in and offer that sacrifice. Someone had to die. Blood had to be shed. The main point of this first section is what verse 4 says. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Animal sacrifice cannot take away our sin, our wrong that we do against God. Those sacrifices were only symbols. One scholar, David Chapman, said these animal sacrifices symbolized the payment for sin. They did not accomplish it. No animal was worthy of paying the price for a human being's sin before a holy God. They represented that someday there would be a way to pay for sin. But just offering an animal itself, it didn't have the same value as someone's sin and rebellion against God. It wasn't enough. Now, the Hebrew people, they assumed that it was. Well, if I offer this animal, then, then God and I are good. They assumed it brought forgiveness. But our author is saying that it must not have because we kept having to offer it. We had to do sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. It must not have been good enough. There was a permanent solution that we needed. Again, in David Chapman's words, a permanent sacrifice is needed to deal permanently with sin. To push sin behind us, to have, so that has no bearing on us anymore, a permanent sacrifice needs to happen. Not a temporary fix, not just throw some duct tape on it. No, a permanent solution to our problem. Sin needs to be taken away. It needs to be lifted from our conscience. It needs to stop burdening us and be removed. That's the only way for us to have peace and assurance. Another scholar, F.F. Bruce, said, a pardon that has to be bestowed and given repeatedly, if you keep forgiving someone, keep offering it, well, that doesn't convey the same peace of conscience as a pardon that is offered or bestowed once and for all. If you have to keep telling somebody, you don't have to feel bad. I forgive you. I forgive you. They're like, oh, I, I feel terrible about this thing. Well, I forgive you. If you keep saying that, then obviously they're not getting the message. But if you say, I forgive you, and they understand that, ah, then that peace is in their conscience. Then there's a way they can know, yes, my sin is forgiven before God. And friends, I have good news for you. There is a way for us to know that. That permanent Peace is ours through the permanent sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In him, if we know him, our conscience, that feeling of guilt we have, that feeling of I'm not doing enough for God, it is permanently forever cleansed. Paul would say in the book of Romans, therefore, since we've been justified, made right with God by faith, we have peace with God. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, some of this about animal sacrifices, it may sound like a distant problem to us. I've kind of brought this up before, but we may think, well, Pastor John, I'm not tempted to go start offering animals. That's not something I'm considering doing right now. Who would want to go back to that? And I understand that, but we shouldn't be too hard on those Hebrew believers because in some ways we wrestle with that same desire before God. Our sinful human nature knows that we are broken. We know that there's something deficient in us, that we're not perfect and complete. We know in our hearts that we are in need of salvation, that we need something to make us right. And we know this because we keep wanting to do things. We keep wanting to sacrifice, atone for the wrong things that we've done. You can see this now every day if you access some form of social media. You can see this, this desire, this expression of people. Sometimes people call it virtue signaling, but it's this idea that some people on social media put out what they're doing to show that I am doing the right things, I'm believing the right things, I'm saying the right things. You will see this anytime you pull up Facebook, Twitter, whatever you want to pull up. You'll see somebody being like, this is something I'm doing. Isn't that great? Isn't that awesome? Now, don't get me wrong. We should celebrate what honors God and what extends his love to other people. But if you've ever spent any time on that, those types of media, you probably know someone, someone in your friend list who has to let everyone know whenever they do something good. And are they doing that because they like attention? Well, maybe, but I, I think that's just an expression of a desire a lot of us have, that we recognize that we're wrong, that we've done things wrong, that we need to fix what's broken in our lives. And by putting out, hey, this is something I did, it's, it's many ways a cry for help. It's a cry of somebody tell me that I'm doing the right thing. Somebody tell me that I'm doing what's right, that I'm fixing the things I've broken and messed up. And I'm not saying this to critique certain people because we, we each do it in some way. We feel this desire, I need to do something to be right with God. I need to do something so people can see that I'm a good person. And that fact that we feel like we need to do something should lead us to a, a sad conclusion, which is we can never do enough. We can never do enough. There's well, there's always be something else. Well, if I do this, well, then you'll find something else to do and something else. You'll help this person. Well, guess what? There's billions more who need help. We will always feel like we can never do enough because there is no sacrifice that we could offer. There's no action that we could take that could remove our sins. The only way to wash away our sin, our guilt forever is through Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can do that. And that's why he is the solution to our problem of these imperfect sacrifices. He is the solution. And there's two ways we can look at this. The first way of looking at it is that Christ does God's will. Our solution to imperfect sacrifice is, is Christ doing God's will. His will, God's desire. Let's look at uh, verses 5 through 7 in chapter 10. Verses 5 through 7. Our author says, Consequently, since these sacrifices are imperfect and they can't take away sins. When Christ came into the world, he said, and here he quotes the Old Testament, speaking to God, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. As 
It is written of me in the scroll of the book. This is a quote from the Psalms in the Old Testament, specifically Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8 in the Greek version of the Old Testament. And our author is saying, yes, David wrote that Psalm, but Jesus fulfills what is said here. These words describe what Jesus said to God. It may help us if we look at it in a different translation. So this is what it says in the New Living Translation of the Bible. Again, Jesus speaking to God. Picture that. Jesus says, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, but you have given me a body to offer. You were not pleased with burnt offerings or other offerings for sin. Then I said, look, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written about me in the scriptures. Our author, David Jesus, were pointing out that God was not ultimately perfectly pleased with the Old Testament sacrifices. He knew a greater sacrifice would be needed. And this isn't the only place that this is said. We see it elsewhere in the Old Testament. The prophet Hosea, giving God's words, God said in that book, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offering. And our author says this is where Jesus stepped in. Christ came to do God's will, God's perfect desire. He was willing to be that supreme sacrifice. Jesus didn't offer an animal sacrifice. He offered his own life. The animals had no choice in the matter, but he did. And he willingly said, I'm going to do this thing that God wants. He became one of us. Our, word, our passage here talks about God preparing a body for him. Well, in the same way, God formed a body for Christ in Mary's womb when he became a human and he lived among us so he could do God's will. The next two verses, eight and nine, the author unpacks what this passage means. Verse eight, he says, when he said above, in the verses we just quoted, when he said, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices, and offerings, and burnt offerings, and sin offerings. These are the things offered according to the Old Testament law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. And here's the point. He, Jesus, he does away with the first in order to establish the second. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. The Old Testament law told God's people to offer sacrifices, but that wasn't God's ultimate desire. They had a purpose in their time. They had a place where God's people were bound by every word in his Old Testament law. But they weren't weren't willed by God. They weren't ultimately desired by him because God had something greater in mind. It wasn't that they were good in and of themselves. It wasn't like sacrifices are cool. I want this to be a thing. No, he's saying they have a purpose. There's something greater that is still to come. They were temporary. God did will, he did desire that someone, a Messiah, a Savior would come to push them to the side and establish something better in its place. Someone who would fully do God's will. We saw this earlier in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 7 we read, For on one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For that law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. 
saying this is what Jesus did. He has set aside the animal sacrifices. He has given us a better, permanent hope of peace with God. Now we can permanently draw near to our Lord. Verse 10 explains what this means. It says, by that will, by God's desire, we have now been sanctified, made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus' offering has sanctified, made holy God's people. Our position has changed. We've moved from darkness to light. We'll talk more about that in a little bit, but one thing I'll point out here is it says about the body of Christ. And that's so interesting because last week we celebrated Lord's Supper. And if you were here last week, the whole sermon was about Christ's blood, his blood that we shed, that when we drink the cup, we're remembering his blood. Well, here he brings the other side of it in, in his body. So the bread that we eat, remembering his body given for us. These two things roll together in, back in chapter 9. It says about Christ, he has entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, by means of his own blood. And he has secured an eternal redemption, an eternal salvation. Because Jesus died for sin, we're now set apart for God's purposes. We want to do something. I want to do something for God. We say, no, that, that, that's trying to offer a sacrifice. That's been set aside. Christ has now solved this issue. We couldn't do God's will. He could. What we needed was one single sacrifice. So we needed Christ to do God's will, and we needed a single sacrifice for sin. A single sacrifice, once for all time. Verse 11, the author brings up this contrast one more time. He says, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. And I feel like I've hit this point a lot, but since this is kind of the last week we're here, let me hit it one more time. The priests were busy men. These Old Testament priests, they had to keep offering these animals all day. There was no place for them to sit down in that tabernacle or temple. They had work to do all day offering sacrifices so that their people would have a hope of knowing God, that they'd have a hope, a prayer, that they could have a right relationship with their Lord. The reality, though, was what they were doing could never permanently take away sin. And so that's the way it was. And if you look at verse 12, one of those wonderful words in the Bible, but, but, something different now. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, well then he didn't work anymore. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be a footstool, made a footstool for his feet. Christ has offered a single, once-for-all sacrifice for sin. A sacrifice that lasts forever. Again, this is something we've seen before. Our author repeats himself a lot, but he really wants us to grasp this. Back in chapter 7, he said, He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once for all when he offered up himself. And now his work is done. Christ sits down in a position of equal power with God. His work is finished. 
Here the author is referring to a psalm, and we talked about this many, many weeks ago. But Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. We saw this back in chapter 1, uh, in a couple of verses, verse 13, verses 3 and 4. The point is Jesus doesn't need to get up to do anything. His work is done. The victory has already been won. Because Christ died for sin, Satan has already lost. God's people are and they will be saved. One uh, scholar, I've already quoted him, F.F. Bruce said it this way, a seated priest is the guarantee of a finished work and an accepted sacrifice. If those people in the Old Testament, if they saw their priests sitting around, they would think, oh, well, they're lazy. They're not doing their work. They would expect them to be working because they knew that it couldn't actually solve their issue. But Christ, he went one time before God died for him, and now he has sat down. Full forgiveness is accomplished through him. So what is he doing now? Well, now God is in the process of bringing everything under Christ's reign and rule that will be fully realized at his glorious return, where he judges his enemies and totally defeats them. It kind of puts a choice before us. It's how do you want to see Jesus? Do you want to see him seated next to God at God's right hand? Or do you want to see him as being an enemy under his feet? But for believers in Christ, this is good news. Pastor John Piper says, neither Satan nor your worst sin can damn you. Satan doesn't pull people to hell. Even, and, and see the point he's making, he's saying that even just the act of your wrong, that in and of itself isn't the issue. The issue is only the guilt of unforgiven sin can do that. If your sin hasn't been paid for, that is the issue. But for believers, now that is over. In Jesus Christ, we have perfect and complete forgiveness through Christ. How does that happen? Well, because of Christ's sacrifice, he has now perfected and made holy God's people. The word our passage uses, he's sanctified them. Verse 14 says, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Christ's sacrifice was decisive. He finally dealt with sin. Now, we may be a little confused at this because it says by a single offering he's done this and then it says he's perfected for all time. That may raise some questions for us because you're saying, Pastor, you were just talking about how people are saying they feel like they need to do something. Pastor, I don't feel like I'm perfect for all time right now. Well, no, I, I get that. We're, we're not sinless. We still do wrong. But the point is what Christ has done has earned our perfection. When God looks at us, Through Jesus Christ, he sees our position as perfect. We are perfect before God. He's made us whole. He sees us complete in Christ. Yes, we still struggle with sin, but he's done something for us already. The the phrase here is, is sanctified there or made holy. So one could say that we are sanctified. We're made holy before God, but we're also being sanctified. He's working that out in our lives We've been made holy and he's making us holy. He brings this about in our lives practically more and more each day. We grow in holiness and we never finish until we reach heaven. 
the reason why we're talking about this may say, Pastor, this seems confusing, but I want us to wrap our, our heads around this. If we have any hope of being holy before God, it's not because we do the right things. It's not because, well, I read my Bible more and more, so that makes me more like God. I pray more and more, that makes me more like God. No, the only hope we have is that Christ has died. He has made us holy. We grow in our understanding of that. We grow how we experience that. We grow in how that impacts our life. But he has done the work. His work is making us more like him. He's applying to our lives the benefits of the death of his body and his shed blood. Through Jesus Christ, God looks at us and sees perfect saints. And our lives may not reflect that now, but as we grow, we reflect that more and more. Peter talks about it this way. He says about Jesus that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. This is something we need to grow in and live in. But by the same token, by his wounds, you have, past tense, been healed. You've been healed, you've been made holy, and now you're to live to righteousness. You're to grow in that holiness. Christ's work is complete. There's no sequel needed. He's done everything that needs to happen. If we want to grow, we have to look to him. If we want to be saved, we have to look to him. There will be no sequel here. There's not something else that needs to happen. Sometimes we think, you know, I feel separated from God. I feel like what I'm doing is wrong, is pushing me away from him. There must be something else I need to do so I can grow. No, where we need to change our mindset is that, is remember what has happened. Remember, Christ did something. It's not something I need to do. Christ did something in my past. He died for sin. That's how I grow, by remembering that, by letting that truth impact my life. Maybe it helps if we think about how sequels even work. That, that's what we kind of base this sermon on. Jesus is better than a sequel. We can probably... Maybe not all of us, but I think many of us would admit that if we're talking about movies, it's rare for a sequel to be better than the original. It's rare. It happens sometimes, but it's, it's rare. And I think the reason for that is because in that original work, the author who wrote if it was a book or whoever did the screenplay, the director, they put so much work into making a great first movie, a great first story. I'm not talking about one that's designed to be multiple stories. I mean, it's supposed to be one. They put so much work into it. And they make a wonderful story that people love. But when a sequel comes along, well, you have to change some of what made that story so great. If the characters had a happy ending, well, something needs to be amiss or else there wouldn't be a movie or it'd be a very boring movie if there was no plot or conflict. And when they change what happened in that first one, it often leads an unsatisfying result for us. Um, if you're someone who talks about movies or, or follows movie news, sometimes people say things like, they're going to make a sequel to this movie or that movie. And people grumble and they're like, why are they making a sequel to that movie? The original movie was perfect. Why are they trying to do something else again? Did it really need a sequel? Well, that's the way we should think about Christ's work for us. His work was perfect. When we think, I wish I could do something for God to make me right with God, what you're saying is, his work wasn't really perfect. Yeah, Jesus was great, but you know, there's something I'd like to do to contribute here. He said, no, Christ's work was perfect. He is the single sacrifice that we need. Now, I, as I was thinking about this, though, I thought there may be a way you could object to this. 
you may say, Pastor John, you're saying that Jesus doesn't need a sequel. There is no sequel. But when you're talking about him, you're talking from the New Testament. Isn't the New Testament a sequel to the Old Testament? Wasn't the Old Testament the, the first one, the original one? The New Testament's a sequel? And I'd say, no, no, the New Testament is not a sequel. The New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The New Testament is part two of the same story. It's the conclusion to the story the Old Testament started. Uh, let me give two examples from movies. This last year, there was one movie that came out. It was an adaptation of a science fiction book. It was a movie called Dune. But if you went to Dune, as soon as you got in, it came up with the title Dune Part 1. That's what it said. And what that told you is, oh, this isn't going to be a complete story. There's going to be some things missing. And if you watch the movie, it left a lot of things hanging. It wasn't the ending. It wasn't, oh, this is the end of the story. Everything's wrapped up. It's waiting for a part two. But probably most of you didn't see Dune, so let me talk about a a, a bigger franchise there. Uh, Let's talk about Marvel movies. It would be like if you watched Avengers Infinity War, which at the end, Thanos, spoiler, snaps, then half the heroes disappear, and you think, well, that's the whole story right there. Okay, I guess I'll go on my life. No. And then you don't watch the second part, Avengers Endgame. It's not complete without the second part. It's not a good story. It's not a satisfying story. That's what the New Testament is. That's who Jesus Christ is. He's that fulfillment to that Old Testament. He's the end game to the infinity war, if you need that (laughs) moral analogy. He's the climax. He is the conclusion to God's one story. And then it's over. There's not going to be a better sequel. One pastor, F.B. Meyer, put it this way. He said, it's very seldom that a man can look back on a finished life work. But from his cross, Jesus Christ, our Lord, looked upon the work of redemption, the work of salvation he had undertaken. And what Jesus saw is that he could not discover one stitch or stone or particle that was deficient. In fact, Jesus' way of talking about it was he said, it is finished. It's over. It's done. And any attempt we have to add to his work, it takes away from what he has already done. Pastor, why does this matter? Why are you spending this time on it? Because, friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, if you know Jesus, there's not something else that you need to do. There's not something that you need to do. There's not something you need to say. There's not something you need to think. There's nothing you can do to add or take away from what Christ has already done. If you feel guilty, if you feel imperfect, the solution is not, I need to do more. I need to be better. No, the solution is look to Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus and you think, my life's a mess, I'm looking for hope, I'm looking for some type of peace, what is it I need to do? The answer is nothing. You need to look at Him, the one who paid it all. Your response to that is to turn away from your sin and believe, trust, have faith in what Christ has done. That's not something you're doing, that's something you're responding to what Christ has done. And I have wonderful, wonderful news for you. Because of what Christ has done, there's a result. If the equation is Christ doing God's will plus a single sacrifice, the answer is the forgiveness of sins. In Christ, we have forgiveness, or your translation may have remission of our sins. 
And our author is saying again, this isn't something he's making up. The Holy Spirit bears witness, testifies that it is true. He spoke about this in that Old Testament. Look at verses 15 through 17. Say the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, and here's another quote from the Old Testament, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And our author says, then he adds this, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. This is a passage we talked about back in Hebrews chapter 8. It's a quote from the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31. The author is saying, this forgiveness, it's not something I'm making up. God said this in his word. In our new relationship with God, God no longer remembers our sins. It's like uh, watching a movie that has a twist ending at the end. If you look at the end of the New Testament, you see, oh wait, there is forgiveness. God's promised a new relationship where he doesn't remember our sin and our wrong that he's done. And that doesn't mean that God's forgetful or God has dementia. That's not what it means. When it says God doesn't remember, it means that he has forgiven us completely and that he doesn't hold our sins against us. Charles Spurgeon says he will make no difference in his future dealings with us on account of our past sins. He will treat his children as though they had always been obedient children and had never revolted. When we know God, he's not up in heaven like, you know, Dan, you really should do what I'm asking you to do. You remember what you were like before, Dan? I do. I remember what you were like before. So you need to to do these things when I ask you to do them. No, God's not like that. No, God is saying, I look at you, Dan, or whoever, and I see Christ. I don't see that which came before. I see Jesus. And so when I ask you to do something, it's not because there's something wrong in you. It's not because there's something deficient in you. It's because I love you. And this is what is best for you. I'm going to skip ahead to verse 18 because the result is if our sin has been forgiven, we don't need another offering. As verse 18 says, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. It is not necessary. It's not required. If our sin has been paid for, we don't need to pay for it. If you're in line to get a coffee or something like that and the person in front of you pays for you, then you don't need to pay for your order. Someone else has paid for it. You can say, no, no, I'd like to pay for my order. No, I'm sorry, sir. The person in front of you has paid for it. Now, in that example, sometimes we pay for the person behind us, but, but think about it in terms of Christ and our salvation. He's paid for us. God's not up there saying, okay, here, give your dues to get into heaven. No, no, Christ paid it on our behalf. So there's no need to practice that old system of sacrifices anymore Christ has given us what we need. He was the perfect sacrifice. There will never be another sacrifice that's acceptable to God. In him, we are forgiven. Paul says it this way, the saying is trustworthy. It's deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And in Paul's mind, I think it's the mind of a a humble person of whom I am the foremost. This is the message of true Christianity. Christ came in the world to save sinners. 
And that forgiveness is ours through him. Our faith is not about coming to church. Although that's important. In fact, next week's sermon will be about that. But it's, it's, that's not what the faith's about. Our faith is not about you doing more good things than bad things. No. Our faith is about coming to Jesus Christ. He is the one who did all the work. Our call is to turn from sin and believe in him. Sometimes we feel the guilt of our sins. Sometimes we feel the burden of them. We think, I, I, don't, I don't feel perfect. I don't feel right before God. But that is the forgiveness and grace that he offers through Christ. Our call is not to live in that guilt. It's to say, see, wait, Jesus paid for that sin. I don't have to feel that guilt. Now, if we feel conviction for sin, that should lead us to confess it to God, but we don't have to feel trapped by it. We can have peace with God through Christ. Sin keeps us from focusing on him. Our solution is to fix our eyes on Jesus. We do that by embracing the truth that's in this passage. Our sacrifices, the things we try to do for God, are imperfect. But Christ has done God's will. He's died as a single sacrifice for sin. And now we have full forgiveness. You'll see in our church and any other church that faithfully proclaims God's word, there's not an altar up here for you to offer animal sacrifices. We don't have that here. Instead, what we have here is a place that we respond to God. And we respond to him in grateful worship for what he has done. In fact, friends, let's do that now. Let's respond to God in praise and worship.